HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our master cheesemaker program is one of the only two in the world. So it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Wade Yenny, the director of grocery for Jimbo's, San Diego's premier natural and organic food store. Prior to joining Jimbo's, Wade was a director at Rouse's Markets, the largest independent grocer in Louisiana. And he also spent over 20 years with the Bueller's Fresh Food Group in Ohio, leaving there in 2019 as their senior director of Center Store. Wade has extensive experience in all areas of retail, including operations, merchandising, procurement, and category management. Having spent time on both the conventional and specialty side of grocery, Wade is just the guy who can help us figure it all out. Right, Wade? <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> wow. That's, a, that's, a, that's quite the pressure. Uh, I, I certainly yeah. will try to help you You're figure gonna it out. You're going to solve sales for all of us. I'm not even going to finish the introduction. We just you, You're the guy. You're going to tell us how to figure this whole thing out. And then everyone can listen to this podcast, get in all their stores, and be done. <laughs> no pressure whatsoever, right? None. Um, welcome. First of thank all, you. thank you so much for coming on. And, um, you know, one of the things that's really nice, I think, about you is that a lot of buyers are, you know, fairly elusive, I would say. I know that they're very busy. They have a lot of people like me emailing, just checking in, just wanted to know if you saw this latest thing that we got, da 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 da, da. Um, But you are known throughout sort of the little CPG world um, for your ability to help us grow, um, for your relationships, for your involvement in general in the community. And that is lovely. Um, I'm a big believer that, you know, what goes around comes around. And if you put information and help out into the world, you get it back. Um, so I appreciate that on behalf of all of us. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I think, you know, uh, I think it's the old, uh, you catch more flies with honey. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was kind of brought up um, in the buying realm as uh, more of the the vinegar guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's kind of evolved into where I am today and and, and putting a, a brand hat, a founder's hat, a salesperson's hat on. Um, and, and kind of looking at it from their mentality. Yeah. Um, and it's something I've challenged, uh, that side to do, um, to put their buyer's hat on. Yeah, absolutely. I think the more we can see each other's point of view and, and try and understand what each other is dealing with, the better we can work together. Yeah. And that's, that's a lot of what I really want to get into, you know, I am going to apologize at the top of this podcast to all of you people out there that have very easy, very obvious shelf stable brands that have a very clear category and an exact place on shelf where they belong. 
and very clear velocity goals because that is not what I'm going to be asking you about, sir. I am very much using this time to talk to you on behalf of those of us who are trying to sort of bushwhack our way into new categories, create different things that grocery stores maybe aren't quite used to or haven't quite seen, um, products that consumers are showing a lot of interest for, both in their D2C shopping, but also just, you know, zeitgeist-wise, that are struggling a little bit to find our homes in traditional, not only conventional, but even traditional natural channel stores. Um, so that's where I'm really going to be, uh, you know, kind of a- asking the tougher questions, I think, um, if that's okay with you. Are you ready? Great. I'm ready to give you tough answers. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, let's start at the very beginning. Um, a lot of us don't have people pitching on our behalf. A lot of founders are doing their own sales at the beginning. Um you know, even founders that can afford sales teams aren't necessarily bringing in heavy hitters. Everyone's learning on the job for the most part, unless you're a repeat founder or, you know, kind of one of those venture back pre-revenue um, brands. So, you know, starting with hello, what's a turn off? What's a turn on? Well, um I think it kind of depends on the individual you're pitching to, but, but let's just, you know, I'll just say myself, right. Um, I, I always tell people, uh, I like dip the toe in, you know, Mm -hmm. don't, don't jump in head first and, and into less than a foot of water. Meaning, um, I think you need to really do some research as far as the individual and, or the retailer that you're pitching to. And what I mean by that is, um, I often give the advice um, to do some some investigative work uh, mm-hmm. on on the retailer's website uh, mm-hmm. and, and get an idea for what their product selection is and how they go to market. You know, whether it's via their circular, whether it's their mission statement, whether it's the about us on their website, and really kind of understand what that retailer is doing. And I I often give that advice with regards to ads, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you can see how that retailer is promoting the products they carry. Yeah. And and really just get a grasp of that before you say, hey, I've got this great product. You know, I mean, like, for example, here at Jimbo's, um, if you come to me trying to pitch something with the first ingredient is non-organic sugar, you're, you've already, you're you're already disqualified. And and I think so many times um, I get, cold call emails. Uh, I don't really do much on the phone because of the nature of the beast, but, um, that, that I've got this great product and I think it would work for you. And I look at the ingredients. I'm like, you didn't spend two minutes looking to see who we are and understand that that's not something we can even carry. So I I think that's the first thing that I would suggest is great advice, you know, do some work. And, and, and with, in this day and age with Instacart and the like, you literally can go online and, and and see the category that you're in, what the retailer is carrying, whether it's, you know, competition or, you know, in, in a case such as yours, um, you know, are we carrying anything like that now? And if we aren't, maybe there's a window of opportunity for you or maybe there's, there's a reason why, why we're not. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, I, I had um, a gentleman on from Kroger several months ago. He, you know, he did the... Um, women and minority owned sort of, you know, he, he's since moved on from Kroger, but one of the things he said, like right up at the top was do research, you know, doing, doing business with any major or even, you know, not major grocery, there's nothing worse than having someone just sort of throw something at you without even knowing your name. A little bit, you know, exactly, what exactly. you're interested in, what you what you're thinking about. Clearly, you know, every store has its own brand and its own mission, and you need to position yourself to fit into that. Um, and then, in terms of, you know, who you like to hear from, you know, does it matter? I mean, in terms of the, you know, if you were starting a brand tomorrow. And you had, you know, the opportunity to to build out your sales team the way that you would want it. Would you 
have brokers early on or would you have sort of someone who has sales experience or do you think, you know, at the very beginning, founders are, you know, for the most part, the best representatives of our own brands? Wow. Um, I'm saying that a lot. You're really blowing me away with questions. I told you. Um, I, yeah, I said, right? roll up your sleeves, man. Yeah, right, man. I'm going to have to take my, my hoodie off here. It's getting hot. <laughs> um, well, and I, and I certainly, you know, I'm just giving my opinion. And, no, this, and of take, course. You know, and taking it for what it's worth. But I, I think in, in, in my role here, um, I do a lot of work with founders. Uh, and I think that's kind of a lot of that is due to um, my locale where we're at. And there's so many founders out of this region that, that, and many times there are emerging brands that maybe haven't built out their sales teams Mm -hmm. or haven't thought about, uh, scaling up to brokers. But, um, I think, you know, uh, if I was building out a team, I, I often say this, I think you and I had this conversation before that, you know, if I could write my story as a founder, um, I think the best scenario is is for you to, you know, there's no one that's going to be as passionate about your product as, as someone that is receiving a paycheck from you, right. um, you know, and has your name on the bottom of it. So they're accountable to you. And, and when you start looking at the broker aspect, um, oftentimes, you know, they, they have so many other brands that they're dealing with. And I feel like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And if yeah. you're not constantly... Uh, you know, checking on the broker and making sure that um, they're doing what you, you know, they said they would and what you expect them to, um, then the person that is the squeaky wheel is getting the grease, right? They're getting that attention. Yeah. So um, I, I think uh, it, it really, it, the, the, the advantage with so many of the brokers, though, is that they typically do have relationships or in ends with the buyers. And that's where as an outsider, quote unquote, uh, as a founder or someone, you might have some challenges finding out who is that buyer and how, Mm -hmm. what's, what's their contact information and how do I reach out to them? So for me, I just want my interactions to be genuine. I want them to be time well spent and I want them to be, um, you know, conversational first and foremost, and, and not just, you know, a bull in a China shop, try and sell me the whole kit and caboodle before you even know, you know, what I'm doing or what I might be looking for or, or what have you. And, and I think the more genuine and the more personal you can be with your brand and your story, in my opinion, that's the better off that you're going to be. And if you can get that attention from a broker and a broker can, can give that perception, fantastic. But I think it's, it's, it's hard. So someone said something to me years ago that I thought was kind of interesting, which was that, you know, for the first couple of years of sales, the first couple pages of your sales deck should be founder story, brand story, origin story. And you don't have that much data to even put in there. You know, you you just don't know a bunch about your velocities yet or how you do you know, you're certainly not buying any big data, but even getting like little data can be hard. And then there's some inflection point where the buyer, you know, a couple of years in is sort of like, eh, I don't really need to know that much about you right now. I need to know how you're going to do for my store and how you're going to do for my category. Do you, what's your take on that sort of assessment? So I always use the hashtag here, ditch the deck, because I think uh, PowerPoint presentations are really overrated. Um, uh-huh. and, and, and I have the luxury of being um, where I'm at um, in the environment I'm at uh, of four stores uh, where I don't, you know, to your point, I don't need a ton of data necessarily for what, how we're going to market. I think where mm-hmm. that comes into play when you start talking about a larger environment, when, you know, whether you look at the group I was with in Ohio or definitely the group I was with in Louisiana, um, the way you scale up and you have all these, you know, more doors then I, as a category manager, buyer, whatever you want to call me, I have to do a little bit more thinking as far as, Hey, do I want to take a risk on this brand? Because I'm not impacting four stores. I'm impacting mm-hmm. 13, six, 60, whatever that case is. Right. And, and so here, I am more interested in, in the stories. I, I right. want to know what makes you different and, and, and what are you going to contribute to the category that I don't already have? And that's why I kind of challenge uh, you from a sales side to say, okay, 
look at, you know, put your buyer's hat on and, and look at what I'm carrying and, and know that in advance, come armed with that knowledge that, okay, he's carrying this. I know that because I did the research and I know there's a void and this is how I can fill that void. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, that's kind of the mentality I have here. So the stories here are way more important than data because so often I'm dealing with those emerging brands that maybe we might potentially be their first opportunity at, mm -hmm. at retail, or maybe we might, you know, they're just getting started and, and they're looking to take those next steps. And, and so that data isn't going to be there. And that's where that, okay, here's how I'm going to help with the category versus, okay, I've been around for three years and here's all this data of, of right. how I sell and, and what items sell, et cetera. So, Taking a step back for a second, it you know, I don't know you obviously very well. We had a really nice conversation in the middle of when I had COVID, which I remember most of. <laughs> um, but I do feel like on your LinkedIn, you know, you talk a lot about your personal journey and you've clearly made a choice to be at Jimbo's. Like there's clearly something where you've... I mean, at least it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you've kind of chosen to be in a smaller, more specialty, more connected. You want to talk to founders. You want to have, you know, I, I, I don't know. Am I reading that right? And I guess if, if I am, then tell me a little bit about that. And if I'm not, then correct me. Sure, sure. So first and foremost, the decision to be here uh, was was really family driven. Uh, our youngest daughter, my wife and I's youngest daughter, lives here in California, and and there, that was certainly uh, very enticing to be closer mm -hmm. to her. And of course, the weather isn't bad either. But yeah. um, but no, uh, I definitely definitely you're you're spot on with um, you know there was a you know, if you look at what I've done work conventional right. has been so much of what I've done over the last twenty plus years and and environments where competitive pricing and uh, factors like that were the dominating decisions, you know, right, you know, so when I brought an item in, I had to think, okay, where am I going to price it against this retailer and that retailer? And are, are they carrying it, et cetera, et cetera, versus here, where we are uh, more mission driven, we are more, you know, uh, we don't have plastic water bottles in our stores, you know, so right. we make we make decisions here, not just monetarily, but we make them because it's the right thing to do. Uh, we have a big, big push right now with uh, regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. And it's those kind of things that when I, you know, was considering a move, it was like, wow, this is completely different than, okay, I have to undercut Walmart by 10 cents or, right. or you know, I it really, so that was definitely appealing. And it's kind of morphed into this thing to your point with LinkedIn and the founders and, and, and all those things where I have been able to touch and, and, and talk to so many people. And it's definitely one of the things I enjoy most about where I am and what I do. Yeah. I think this is a good time to take a quick break because that's going to kind of segue into just this whole industry in general, which you're going to have thoughts on. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get more into it. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program. This rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and the program is only one of two in the world. Becoming a master cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese, with intense requirements to succeed. Our Master Cheesemaker Program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com.
I'm back with Wade Yenny, um, director of grocery for Jimbo's. So, okay, before the break, we were talking about your decision. Personally, obviously, San Diego has the best weather, I think, if not in the world, in America. <laughs> um, and But aside from that, you know, and family and whatnot, you know, the grocery industry has gone through a massive upheaval. I mean, you know, I wasn't in it until 2018, but, you know, even before COVID, there was definitely this sort of impending threat coming from e-com and, you know, direct-to-consumer companies, and there were more 3PLs, and consumers were starting to buy things in a different way. You know, the grocery industry was sort of on the later side of getting you know, disrupted, for lack of a better word, from e-com. And then COVID accelerated that like crazy. And I've talked about this on the show before, where I really feel empathy for, you know, our buyers and, and just grocery stores in general is, again, tell me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that they were all starting to kind of gear up to try to figure out how to like sharpen their elbows and keep these e-com companies from taking too much of their share away. Then all of a sudden we're struck with a global pandemic where all innovation kind of has to go out the window because you just have to keep, you know, toilet paper on the shelf. And in the meantime, you have all these e-com companies just going completely bonanza and consumers are now adjusted to buying produce, you know, from their phones, which was not a behavior that people were really used to, you know, three or four years ago. So to be a grocery buyer right now almost feels like you either have to choose, like you did, innovation, thoughtful, you know, sustainability, you know, really providing something of value and special to your consumer, or just trying to eke out as much margin as you can. And those two things to me feel fundamentally opposed. Right, right. Yeah, so I know, uh, you know, I I actually came here in the middle of, of 2020, smack dab in the middle. And so I experienced the, the beginning of the pandemic in Louisiana. And I know I was tripping over myself to source sanitizer. And mm-hmm. I, was question, I was questioning, okay, what are face masks? You know, who, you know, Two years ago, two and a half right. years ago, no one knew what, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, so what's the price of a face mask and et cetera, et cetera. And then I got out here and we were kind of in that mold, you know, just trying to keep product on the shelves. And, you know, it's, it was kind of all hands on deck. And, you know, I was often saying that um, any data we have, you know, going back to data a little bit um, for the last six months and now, you know, essentially almost the last two years, um, you really have to look at it with a grain of salt because mm-hmm. so much of the decision-making, so much of sales, so much of everything has been pandemic-driven, whether it's the supply chain, uh, supply and demand, things available, things not available, et cetera. Um, but going to the e-commerce piece, I know, you know, uh, we were looking um, in Louisiana, we were really starting to take a close look at, uh, and, and obviously things are a little bit different there. It's not New York, it's not California, you know, it's, right. it's rural to some extent and 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 not as far advanced in, in you know, Amazon and things like that. But mm-hmm. we were really starting to take a close look at our, our retail's and, and considering Amazon, which we had never done before, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, you know, obviously we were looking at competitive uh, brick and mortar in the market, but we weren't spending a lot of time, okay, what is Amazon selling us for? And we were starting to do that in Louisiana. Yeah. H- here, uh, we, again, we're, we're in a completely different environment. There are a lot of uh, online, you know, GoPuff is here and DoorDash and, you know, Instacart and all mm-hmm. those things, uh, Amazon same day. So I think, you know, what we need to do as retailers is, uh, and, and this actually kind of was the case in Louisiana that, you know, I think our president there was one of the first people that was really preaching this was that the, the, um, experience, the in-store experience has right. to beat the, um, the, ease of use cost, right? Yeah. You know, the ease of use of the online piece. And if, you know, so meaning if it's selling for $7.99, I have to be able to justify your in-store experience, um, with customer service and 
differentiating to, to sell it to you for $8.99 because, you know, that's if I'm going to charge more, then I better be able to give you a reason why you're going to pay more because you yeah. know you can pull up your phone and look at any app and say, oh, I could buy this here for $7.99 or $6.99. Why should I pay you $8.99? Yep. I, as a retailer, need to be able to tell that story. So it's definitely something um, that I, as a buyer, I think about. And, you know, as a brand approaches me, sometimes, you know, maybe I don't have the information to what their suggested retail is. So the first place I check is their online website. And, right. you know, if, if they're in a sense competing with me and selling it cheaper on their website, then I got to have a conversation and say, okay, well, if I can buy it online at five ninety nine, why is someone going to come to my right. store and pay eight ninety nine? Tell me, you know? Right. And so, yeah, it's, it definitely makes you think for sure. Well, one of the things that you and I talked about that was so much fun on our first call was kind of addressing this. I don't remember what was the name of the store you told me where it was all like intuitive shopping and it wasn't by category, but it was the way that you intuitively might shop. Oh, Bloom. For it was Bloom, right? Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Wade told me the story about this grocery it was I guess it was a banner of a larger store it was a banner food lion right and I mean I kind of did some research I I got things got a little crazy but basically you know because and and you and I've talked about this one of the things and anyone who listens to this podcast again sorry but this is my bugaboo you know, we end up finding ourselves in this in this random set a lot of times this sort of plant-based netherworld where they put things that they don't know where to put things. And a lot of times I'm like, why don't you put the ginger miso next to the salmon? And why don't you put the chimichurri next to the steak? Now I know enough to know now that that is not how it works and that grocery stores are not built for that. But to your point about, you know, retailers really progressing to the point where the experience of the store justifies having to go to the store, spend the time, and sometimes even spending a little more money, the natural experience would be, okay, I don't have to run to seven different places to make dinner tonight. And yet, again, it seems like the paradox is they're not really built for that. And I'd love just your thoughts on that because that that cross-merchandising thing, making a consumer feel like they're they're throwing things in their cart the way they would online except they're doing it in real life and they get to touch and feel and see seems like a very natural way to create a great experience and yet it it seems like very very challenging so maybe you can give us a little bit of background on why that's so challenging and why don't you think bloom worked well and i i don't know i think when we looked i think they you know, maybe, maybe I'm looking back through rose colored glasses. Cause I don't, you know, I remember thinking about it as a, a great concept and, and, you know, that's what you and I talked about. And I think you told me, or the research you did showed that the most of the, most of that banner closed up, but yeah, but, <laughs> yeah to go back to our conversation. So um, again, putting the, my operations hat on now um, I think, so when you look at it from a store perspective um, you know, cross merchandising is, is what we talked about and, or um, having it, placed in the right place within Mm -hmm. the store. And so often what happens is, is you've got, you know, whether you're talking corporate or at store level, you've got an individual that's responsible for budgets and sales and margin and all those things and terms. And, and so what happens frequently is that walls are put up uh, not physical, but, but Mm -hmm. uh, virtual, if you will, walls that, okay, this is my area and I need that space because I can put two more, of this there that's my ring versus you taking that space and it being the greater good for the store because that item sells for $8.99, but it's going to go to your budget and your sales versus those two spots that I could have had for my budget and my sales. And so often, unfortunately, that's what happens is that uh, at, the, at a retail level, you know, the the individuals are thinking about their own specific area responsibility versus the the bigger picture, which is of the total store and the total basket. And I think that's, that's a challenge in every environment that I've been in. 
right. um, that 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 mentality is often there. Uh, and whether it's, I, I feel like it, it's something that has to has to change uh, from the top. And 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 so many times, uh, individuals are incentivized by you know bonuses or mm-hmm. you know what have you. Uh, and so again, it's it's based on their productivity and their performance and their department specific goals versus a total picture. And I right. think that's that's something I think that would certainly be refreshing to to go to it so that forced individuals to collaborate and say, okay, if if we want to hit numbers, uh, we have the to work together. Next to the eggs, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and, yeah. and I think the other thing we talked about a little bit though too is when you start cross merchandising outside of your area responsibility um, in store from an operational standpoint. Uh, if I'm the dairy guy using that example, right? If I want to put eggs next to bacon or wherever in the meat department, I spend 99, whatever percent of my time in my dairy cooler in my area. Mm-hmm. So the satellite display over in the meat department that needs to be checked and, and restocked and ordered right. for is it tends to you know, not be a priority. And right. so inevitably what happens is, is that display gets run down. The meat guy says, well, see, they won't take care of it. And they mm. throw, they throw more bacon there and fill the spot in. Right. And I, th- right. I think, especially now in the environment we're in now with so Labor. many stores. Yep. Yep. Mm. There, there's so much of that going on that it's probably the worst time to try and execute flawlessly cross merchandising because of, you know, it, it's everything everybody can do to keep their own areas looking good, let alone, oh, let's, let's build a display in the produce section or, you know, in the meat area. It's, it's, it's very tough. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it's kind of, you know, I can't tell you, I, I happen to have really, really nice relationships with my buyers, partly because they really helped me understand the industry. And I'm just very appreciative of that. Um, but you know, a, a couple of them have said to me, they've gotten totally opposing directives from leadership. There's a strategic plan, you know, they come out with a sort of, it's all about innovation and consumer discovery and being a place for, you know, the new consumer who's looking for better for you and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, but But then they're actually not being motivated or, you know, compensated really for that. They're, they're, they're still not, they're still getting sort of cross at odds directives from leadership, which seems to be sort of a problem across the board where, you know, everyone kind of knows this. Everyone knows there needs to be more refrigeration in the stores. I think a lot of stores know that they, you know, they, they're not going to be able to compete with a lot of this stuff. So they do need to have, as you said, that experience needs to be super, super special. Um, and yet they're finding it really hard to make those changes, not only, you know, for the logistics issues that existed way before COVID, but now they don't have people to forget about cross merchandise, put tags on things in stores that, you know, it's, it, it feels like this is where the relationship between the stores and the brands now need to change. And I guess that's part B for, you know, this is not going to be something that I think stores in the near future are going to be able to execute, which means that it's going to be the responsibility of the brands to build that out in the stores. And I guess part of that means that if for us to make that kind of investment, we kind of need to know that we're not going to get discoed immediately. We kind of need to know that, you know, A, we can get in the store, all of that stuff. But what would be, you know, if you were sort of the grocery god, uh, what would you, you know, what what trade-off would you say? Like, how would you how would you fix this? You know, knowing knowing that the grocery stores are probably not going to be where that is coming from. What what can the brands do, and how do we budget for it? Or you know, maybe instead of paying for, you know, yellow tags, we're paying for merchandising displays and merchandisers to go in and do whatever. I, I don't know. Or, you know, yeah, what's, that's, what's that's, your thought? I was going to say, that's interesting. I think any merchandising support and today, now the conversation we're having, I would say any merchandising support that a brand can help with, whether it's 
themselves or, you know, a, a third party would be welcomed in most environments just because of the challenges we're dealing with. Um, but if and when we ever get past COVID, um, I, I think um, part of that goes back to, you know, what we talked a little bit before about that data, that if if you can show me uh, as a buyer that, okay, I've got data that uh, if you put it here in the store, we're going to sell 10 times versus if you put it there in the store. If, and mm-hmm. if you can, and if I can be open enough as a buyer to listen to that right. and, and then in theory, go to bat here and say, okay, uh, Mr. Produce guy, produce is challenging here because we're hundred percent organic. So that brings its own challenges with regards to what mm-hmm. we can and can't display there. Um, but, or Mr. Meat guy, Hey, um, do me a solid. Can we talk, you know, in, in our right. relationships here, our team here, they're great. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, the bigger picture at a bigger store, that's where, you know, the people have to have open minds to that. And I think, uh, I, I think it goes back to that, you know, the budgets and the sales and, and the example you were giving about like, you know, the leadership team giving this goal or mm-hmm. saying this, but then wanting that, you know, and they were kind mm-hmm. of work. So, so my take on that is that, that story to me, it's almost like, okay, so the, the press release or the public face is we want to do this and it's, it's like romantic, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and this is who we want to be. But the reality is, well, that's just for, that's smoke and mirrors, right? You know, I want dollars, you know what I mean? Right. And I think, I think that's part of what, uh, part of what is happening in that example you gave. Um, but I think, I, I think, the marketing that you can, if you can put money into displays, uh, I, I, you know, we don't do a ton of paid display activity here. I mean, our, our, our end caps certainly are helped, uh, our programming is driven by brands and, and such that support our internal newsletter. So that does factor in, but I know, uh, in larger environments, uh, larger chains, there are, you know, paid for a rack on the floor or a month long display or something of that nature. And I think it's it would would be wise of a brand uh, to have that conversation with the buy and to see what options there are, because, yes, to your point, maybe it is smarter to spend those dollars instead of a tag for mm-hmm. a display or for a off-shelf placement of some kind versus, okay, well, I got a tag on the shelf that saves me 50 cents, but is that driving volume? Right. Right. And, and okay. So going back to you as the grocery God now going, skipping that and going back to you as the emerging brand founder, (laughs) right? If you were, you're now in charge of like, okay, I have $10 to spend on marketing, you know, here's how I would want to break it up. You know, what do you think is sort of, what have you seen where you're like, huh, wow, well done, brand. Right. You know, right. what have you seen? So so internally here, and, and again, I'm using our example mm-hmm. because that's where I'm at and that's, you know, the success we've had here. Um, so the first and foremost is, is demos, you know, whether mm-hmm. whether that's a third party, again, a third party, the, the store's internal program, or you yourself coming in and do it. Nothing is going to beat someone, hopefully someone that's educated about your product, you know, versus, uh, you know, yeah. And just to talk about it and to tell your story and to get it in people's hands and mouths. And obviously, uh, COVID COVID restricts uh, a lot of that, or at least it has for us on what we can and can't do. But, but again, COVID aside, I don't think there's a better way to spend money than to put it in people's mouths and hands that first and foremost, above all else beyond that. Um, I think it goes back to doing your homework with that retailer because here that's, I I think that's our customers are looking for the newest, the healthiest, the, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the vegetarian, this, the vegan, that, and, and that's what our customers here are looking for. So what you spend here, um, in education and demoing, um, and things of that nature are, in my opinion, going to pay significantly better dividends than if you put a price out, you know, a yellow tag out there for $3 off you, because right. the customer in this market is more, at least at our stores, is more concerned with their health and well-being and coming right. in our doors because of our product selection versus I'm going to save a dollar. We're not the cheapest in the market. We never will be. Right. Um, so I think that's that's that that's what I would advise here. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to su- like summarize that a little bit for for 
for people listening, because that's, that's hugely important and I don't want to gloss over it. When we're talking about doing research on a retailer, it's not just what do you carry and where your holes are and how can I be helpful? It's who's your consumer and what motivates them to shop at your store, right? The, the Jimbo's consumer is not motivated by price. Correct. They're motivated by their wellness and being a part of sort of a new consumer movement of cleaner options and better for you brands and trying new things. And, and so knowing that already, you know, a helps you make a decision of, am I the right product for this group? Right. And for most emerging brands, the answer is probably yes, because we're all probably more expensive than the, less better for you options that we're all trying to sort of, you know, innovate on, um, but also help, help you make marketing decisions, right? Like that yellow tag is not going to drive trial the way that, you know, someone saying, here's this and here's how you put it on your lamb chops is. Right. 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 Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, and, and again, I still encourage um, to get some yellow tags. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, ideally, I like to see quarterly, but but that's one of the first things I tell somebody when I talk to them about about coming in. And this is my philosophy and it's not the philosophy, you know, not doesn't necessarily work. You know, one size fits all. But um, I want you to come on the shelf and, and get get your regular price point established. If that's, I keep using 899 for whatever, I don't know why that number's mm-hmm. in my head, but you know, I want to establish, Hey, this is a product and this is what the price is versus an introductory offer to try it at 599. And, and because we haven't established that 899 is what your product's worth. Right. So to do a BOGO or to do something that's just completely off from where we're going to put you every day to me is counterproductive because then you're kind of training that, that mentality to, okay, I'm going to pick it up when it's five ninety nine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's important for me to, as a, as a buyer to establish that. And that's, that's part of what I, my job is. Um, and, and work towards that education of that eight ninety nine versus the five ninety nine. So um, the other right. thing we you know that I that I t- tell people and 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 again it works in this market and, and that's what we're talking about um, is uh, to really as a brand whether it's you you know yourself your sales team your brokers whoever whoever it is um, to develop relationships with the store teams and and one of the best ways to do that the example I give time and time again. Um, is the team, the folks at Siete, and they've done just mm. a phenomenal job uh, with with developing relationships. Um, they actually have a website where you as a employee at store level can go to and order a hat, a T-shirt, a oh, hoodie, wow. gloves, free, free. They ship it yeah. to you um, and, and it's their logo. And guess what? I challenge you to come into any of our stores on any given day, and I'll be shocked if you won't find at least one person that has something Siete on, on right. be, you know, that they've done. And obviously, that's not necessarily in the budget for emerging brands to send right. out to everybody. But if you're in, you know, if you're building a relationship here, um, you know, I, I use the example again of the of the the guys at Midday Squares. Before, yeah, they were on but, last week. Yeah, before <laughs> yeah. I love those. I love those guys. They're like family to me. But yeah. before before they were ever on shelf here, we had people that had T-shirts in their hands. They had received samples. The team at store level, not the buyers. Yeah. We we'd yeah. already been through that. The teams at the store level got like care packages, introducing the brand to them. Um, you know, and, and, and some swag and some fun stuff so that when we did get it on shelf, the team was already excited. You know, the yeah. team, the store teams were like, wow, they're finally here. And, and so they were already kind of educated and pumped up about it. Um, and then, you know, like I said, I give the example of what better cheap advertising is there than if you yeah. come in through Someone a cashier. Around with the sweatshirt. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And they, and they walk past it and they're on their feet for six, we're 10 hours a day. We're putting a QR code. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're on our, so we have a, a, a nice, good, beautiful, lovely retailer coming on in a month or so. Um, and they're all getting the swag, but we're like, we, we, we also want them to have little QR codes on there. So people can be like, what the heck is that thing that they have on their back? And, you know, it's nice. 
I don't know that everyone's going to be wearing it to the family picnic, but they, they are going to be cute. Um, right. But you said something and I, I wanted to go back to it because, Oh, I'm trying to think you got me with that Siete story. I have that like star, star exclamation <laughs> point, exclamation point. Um, but I guess, you know, going back to, yeah, so we can't do that with every store, right? But I mean, it seems to me like you pick a really, you pick your, you know, six to eight really important demographics as a brand. You know, maybe it's San Diego, maybe it's New York City, maybe it's right. Miami, whatever it is. And then you pick a retailer in those demographics and in those places where you can really lean in with all of your marketing support and all of the swag and the people and the love. And it seems like that, it doesn't have to be scalable. It just has to be, you know, a couple of places that are sort of these shining lights for your brand, where you can say, this is the best of what we can be. And then you kind of create that flywheel with the right consumer for your product. I mean, if again, if you were starting a brand tomorrow, is that how you would do it it's it's like you're a fly on the wall and you've you've listened to either some of the other other talks that i've done and or me <laughs> having this saying this out loud because i think if 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 a brand had me with you know coax me into sales tomorrow and i started selling product i think that's the exact strategy that i would do is like okay in this market these are the retailers that i want to go after and and mm -hmm. it's not it's not 10 20 it's one or two and i want mm -hmm. to build that relationship. I want to, you know, invest time and money into making that relationship successful. Um, because first and foremost, then, you know, you're going to automatically organically grow that business. But, but beyond that, I think, you know, then you have a story, you have that data as emerging brand to go say if, and when you want to, right. to expand and scale and say, yeah, here's, here's, here's my roadmap to success. And, and I think that's so oftentimes I think as, as brands are coming up, they, they think more doors is better. And that's not necessarily true. If right. you can, if you can get in one store, that's going to sell 20 cases a week versus 20 stores yep. that can't sell half a case a week. Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's really about, you know, making your, the partnerships that you choose uh, successful. And I think that's a very smart way to do it is to finding uh, the right demographics, uh, both location and stores mm -hmm. and, and building those, you know, brick by brick, you know, and, yeah. and then, and then kind of looking to scale beyond that as opposed to, uh, wow, if I can get in Kroger and Walmart tomorrow, I'm set, you know, and right. it's, you know, that's a dangerous, the other thing that I talk about all the time is, is, you know, if you're, if that's your, if that is your strategy to get in as many doors as you can, you have to be careful what you ask for. Because if, if I came to you tomorrow and said, Ali, I, I can put you in 300 stores. Are you ready to do that from a supply right. standpoint? And then, you know, the worst mistake that you can make is to get in those stores and then not have product then, to sell. And then you've got yeah. an empty shelf, you know? Yeah. So I, I love it. I love saying, okay, here's this partner that I'm going to pick in this region. And before I add anybody else on, I'm going to, I'm going to make, you know, be bound to determine that that retailer is going to be successful. And then I can look beyond that when I'm ready to, as opposed to, okay, let's throw enough, a bunch of dirt against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. And I also think, you know, one of the things that I'll admit happened to me um, is I was all about, you know, confident in my premium price point. I know that I'm making something that has zero preservatives, zero added sugar. You know, HPP is an expensive process, but it is one of the most incredible innovations in science, I think, that we've had in the last 50 years in terms of being able to keep fresh food fresh without adding garbage to it or boiling it down to nothing. And, you, you know, I held on to that price point. I held firm. And yet the more people that got involved in the business, whether it was sales teams or broker teams or, you know, more UNFI teams or whoever it was, the more that I kind of, I would throw a promo at it a little bit, you know, and not, not intentionally, and I'm reining it back in a little bit. And we have a new head of sales who is, you know, our first internal head of sales, which is great. 
Um, but it is very tempting. A, it's tempting to open more doors because that's what you see when you look at like all of the LinkedIn stuff, you know, right. and you and you see what venture funds are investing in. And, and it's really, really hard to double that velocity. So you might as well just like add on another 300 doors, right? So it's tempting. It's also really tempting to, because everyone tells you it's a price point problem. Everyone says, we love it, we love it, we love it, but, oh, you know, it, by the time I get the 40% margin, it's, it's $7.99, it's at $6.99. And, and so you, you, immediately, you immediately start talking about how many promotions. And one thing I'm really like a, a New Year's resolution for me is like, it's a premium product. It's not got any additional nonsense in it. A little goes a long way. I have to be confident in my price point. I think that with inflation, a lot of the other sort of less expensive brands are going to be actually raising their prices so that Delta isn't going to feel as crazy. And you just have to own it a little bit and hold to it. Know, know what you're offering. And if a buyer it's like, just can't make it work unless, you know, someone told us that they can't make it work unless it's $4.99 on shelf. There's wow. just no way. There's right. no way. And it, then it's just, then it's not even close to right for that consumer. Um, but it's hard because, you know, you want, you want yeses. It's hard. Right. Right. And I, I, I think, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, the, the, throughout my career, we, we'd have spells where, um, you know, if you look at a meat program, right, there's, there's different cuts of meat and choices of meat. And, you know, um, one of the brands we carried, um, that we'd had a great relationship with in Ohio was certified Angus beef, which mm -hmm. is, is not the cheapest beef in, in the case. It's just not. Mm -hmm. Um, but we went exclusively, um, you know, that's all we carried for, an ex for a part of time. I'm not sure what they're up to now, if they have more or not, but that's all we carried. And, and that was the gist of the program was when we went to market with that program, this is what we're carrying. This is why we're carrying it. If you're looking for USDA or choice or something lesser value, unfortunately, this isn't for you. You know, this right. isn't this. And, and we had to really work on that educational piece from a branding standpoint internally, in addition to the help of the brand to get that message across. Why is it more expensive? Right. What What is that process? And I think it's the same thing what you're talking about is if you can you can tell me and educate me as a consumer what the, why <laughs> I'm going to pay more for your product. I'm going to be more receptive to, to doing it versus, okay, we well, just put it on the shelf and it's next to something that's half the price. Well, right. you know, I, I mean, you, that's, that's unfortunately it's on you to, right. to take the lead. In we that. actually put it right on the corrugate. So we literally say, why is this in the refrigerator? And what, what does that mean? <laughs> like, right. I don't even want someone to have to like take it and look at the back or whatever. I want it just, you know, at eye level as much as possible, which means of course that, Every corrugate is a little, you know, has a different QR code for the different flavor, which of course is a little more pricey, but I think worth it. Okay, last right. question. I started at the beginning with, you know, hello. Hmm. What, what, what is the right cadence for you? I mean, you know, the, the ones that you have real relationships with, like, you know, they're not going to, you're not going to have a deep relationship with every one of your brands, but you know, how often do you like to hear from them? Do you like a quarterly kind of here's what happened? Do you like, hey, look at this news thing that came out or happy new year? You know what? I mean, and I know it's just you, but generally. Right. Um, right. Yeah. You know, so I, I think a lot of that depends on on the individual uh, and the scale of what they do. Right. I mean, in, in past environments, um, oftentimes there were top to top meetings, you know, so, you know, you're meeting with executive leadership on the brand side, as well as your internal people, you know, so, you know, in, in director roles or senior director, mm -hmm. whatever you want to say, what I've done over the years, you know, you are involving a VP or perhaps a president um, and doing meetings like that. Um, so, but then scaling it down to what I do here, um, I, I think it's just, it's just really important for the brand or whoever is representing your brand, whether that's the broker, whatever you want to call them, wh whoever it is, mm -hmm. to, to have their, their fingers on the pulse of, of what 
that individual buyer is doing. Like here, for example, I try to be as transparent as transparent can be. And I'll tell you, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be out of the office this week, you know, or, Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, wait, wait to reach out to me till here. And I think when, when I'm giving you that information, I think it's, it would behoove you to listen to it and, and react to it accordingly so that, you know, and oftentimes you can get that out of a tone of an email or a phone call or a meeting. Mm -hmm. You know, if I just say, Hey, Allie, I'm swamped, you know, blah, blah, blah. Probably not the best idea to reach out to me next week with new items, you know, and, and really just, and and I go back to, you know, the relationship piece. I think it's one of the reasons why I have been successful and I have been able to grow relationships is that I'm, I'm, I'm that guy I'm listening Mm -hmm. and I'm giving back, um, you know, it's unfortunate because even even as much as I do that, I still get a lot of uh, a lot of those guys that dive head first in, and it's like, man, are you not listening or seeing right. anything? Do you not understand? But but I think um, there isn't once again one size doesn't fit all. I think it really is listen, do your research, and when you build that relationship, you know, you and I have a relationship, and and you know, we don't know each other extremely well, but I think just on those conversations we've had, mm-hmm. I think there's things that you can and and will do based on the interaction we've had. And so I think it's important when you have that interaction or you have that meeting or email contact or whatever it is, you, you learn from it and, and you adjust your pitch to that specific buyer, you know, because, because maybe buyer a wants all the data you can give him. He wants to know how you're doing it. You know, his competition, he wants Mm -hmm. all that, but buyer B, could give two cares about it and, and simply right. wants to talk to you and see what's up with you and your family and, and, <laughs> and talk about what's going on in his store, you know? And yeah. I, I think, I think that's to me is, is the people that will be successful in sales um, don't have uh, just that, you know, cookie cutter. Right. This is, this is my pitch. Um, you know, what have you. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and I've, and it's probably going to have to be a post down the road because of, uh, you know, I've thought, thought about it a little bit and I think it would be good for brands is when you think of, you know, so many times I tell you that I put my founder's hat on and I suggest you put a buyer's hat on or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and we all have one buying experience, at least most of us do that you can relate to. And I was thinking about this today and it's a, it's a car salesman. Right. <laughs> think, think about no. Right. I mean, think about it when you go on that car sales, you know, that car lot. Right. Think about what rubs you the wrong way. Yep. You know, is it that guy that comes up to you? You're just trying to look at stickers or colors or right. what have you. And you get this guy that comes up and he says, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. he wants your Social Security number and everything. Right. Yeah. How does that make you feel versus. Yep. Hey, you know, Allie, this is, I'm Joe and, you know, uh, let me know if there's anything I can help you with. I'll be right around the corner. And then maybe right. he waits like 15 minutes and comes back around and it's something of that. Think about that mm-hmm. and how you feel, how it makes you feel versus that guy that just comes up and he's trying to I think I know the title you, for right? this episode now. <laughs> yeah. Because it was going to be building with grocery buyers, but I think it's going to be building like a good car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, d- does that make sense? Yes. No, it makes total sense. I, you know, and founders get a lot of unwanted, we get so much, I can help you grow exponentially, your retention, your blah, blah. I'm like, you don't even know what I sell. You don't even, you don't know the, like, no, no, no. There have been very, very few that I've been like, huh, this guy actually has done some research, knows that I buy coconut milk and is actually offering to have a conversation about where the coconut milk I buy comes from and if he can be helpful. Ding, right. you know. Right. Um, all right, Wade, I this this is so awesome. Everyone should just, you know, follow you on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not going to give out your cell phone number because, you know, a lot of emerging brands listen to this and they'll be calling. Hopefully they'll do their research first and they listened to the whole podcast. Um, But thank you so much for coming on the show. This stuff is really, it's complicated and um, it's frustrating. And, you know, with supply chain issues and everything, it's just gotten even more complicated. So I really appreciate your time helping me, but also helping, you know, the thousands of people that listen to the podcast. So thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been my pleasure. And, uh, you know, um, I, I usually am not, not very shy about sharing my cell phone, but I don't think I want to put it on the podcast, but <laughs> I think, you, you know, you'd be surprised with how many, once 
relationships are built, how, how often, you know, I'll get a, a text from a founder that's like, Hey, I have a quick question or something. And I, okay. and I, you know, whether it's LinkedIn, DMS, emails, I'm pretty receptive to, to conversations. And just, you know, if you want to hear, um, you, you, you're using grocery, God, somebody said something the other uh, day. And <laughs> I, 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 or something? Uh, no, it was, it was the buyer Buddha, I think. Oh, um, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was going to say, so I, I think I have to pay her royalties every time I do that. But, uh, I like that. uh, yeah, I like that one. I like that one a little bit better, but it's been fun <laughs> and, uh, happy to do it anytime. Thank you. Um, Armin, as always, thank you for solving all of our engineering problems. Yet again, you solved our engineering problems. So really appreciate it. And listeners, um, thank you, thank you, thank you. I got a lot of really fun feedback on my interview with Jake from Midday Squares uh, last week. And I appreciate all the suggestions that you're sending for founders and you know people that support this industry. Um, you know, the more that we can help each other, I think the better off we are. So um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.